live. Awesome. Welcome back to the Generators Podcast with me, Trent McClellan. This is episode 81, if you can believe that. I don't know what I said the last episode, but this is actually episode 81, I'm pretty sure, here on the Comedy Here Often Podcast Network. Um, yeah, I took a few weeks off. Um, I'm my own boss. So I put in a request. Um, hey, would like some time off. Specify the weeks that I would like to have off. Um, pass it into myself. And uh, once I received it from myself, I, I looked at, you know, where the, uh, where the company is as a whole. And uh, if we can afford to have an employee step out for a few weeks and a uh, uh, request was, was granted, you know, luckily. And uh, that's the kind of employer I work for. So um, I took advantage of it and just uh, took it easy, you know, took some downtime and, uh, and unplugged. So I hope you're good out there, wherever you're listening to this thing. And, um, and that you're, you're finding a way to get uh, to get through the uh, these uh, crazy rapids, fast current flowing river we're in right now, where we don't know where we end up from day to day, you just try to avoid hitting the rocks and the sides. That's how I would describe life for most people at this time. Uh, it's uh, it's. Uh, it is not something you can predict predict in any way. And uh, you just got to ride the wave and hope that at some point it gets to just calm water where you just kick back and feel the sunshine on your face, you know? And you're like, oh, yeah. I remember those rough waters we had there for about a year and a half to two years. <laughs> God, you know? And now uh, you feel some some relaxation. So hopefully that's coming soon for, for all of us out there. Um, this episode, I'm really excited to, to have this guest on the show. Uh, this is someone that uh, um, I met back in 2013, way back then, uh, on a little program called Canada Reads, uh, which was on, um, on TV and, and on the radio. And uh, my task was I had to defend her book, February. Uh, her name is Lisa Moore. She's an incredible... But first of all, a very, very nice person. Uh, also, you know, super talented. She paints. She's a professor at the university. She's an incredible author. Um, she's written a play. Like, she's just, she's done so many things. Um, so I first meet her in 2013. I select her book, February, uh, to defend in this program. And uh, Canada Reads, for those of you who don't know, it's, it's kind of a battle of the books where... Uh, five books are selected, and then five people who didn't write those books defend those books to a panel, and every every day a book is voted off. And uh, luckily, February, the book that I was defending, was selected as the winner. And uh, the real winner was Lisa Moore, because uh, um, it, it's a great book. It's about a, a fictional book based uh, kind of loosely on the uh, Ocean Ranger oil rig disaster that happened back uh, happened in Newfoundland. Uh, back in the eighties. And, um, so I met Lisa at this time, just as we were getting ready to shoot this show. 
And uh, I've said it numerous times, <clears throat> it's the most nervous I've ever been, I think, for anything. Because when someone works so hard at something for such a long time, as Lisa did on the book, um, you're going to hand it over then to a comedian who you've never met to defend your book. And the book is, although there's some comedy in there, it's it's a fairly serious topic. And it's about, you know, love and loss and the environment, environmental concerns and, and, uh, and just this, this terrible, terrible tragedy that, um, that happened in, in, uh, in Newfoundland off the coast of Newfoundland at the time. And uh, she's handing it over to, you know, this comedian that she doesn't really know and uh, says here, and her advice to me at the time was, you know, just, just make it yours. Don't, uh, don't necessarily worry about what, you know, I had in mind when I wrote it, just, you know, make it your own and go do your thing. And so I remember at the time that was very freeing because I'd heard stories that some of the other authors were not as, uh, um, not as open-minded with their books in terms of how they wanted it discussed and how they wanted it presented on the show. So, uh, she gave me that freedom and luckily we were able to pull it off and, and, uh, and the book was chosen the winner, which was, I'll be honest with you, a great feeling, but it was also the most nervous I've ever been doing something. Um, again, when you're defending someone else's work, it's just, it, it felt like a lot of pressure, even though none of that pressure was put on me by Lisa herself. Um, so yeah. And, and she was incredible during that time and so supportive. And, uh, I've been wanting to have her as a guest on the podcast for, for many, many years. And it just, I never had a chance to reach out to her. So finally I was able to, and she was, uh, she luckily said yes. And so, uh, this is our chat and we do uh, reminisce a little bit about um, Canada Reads. And uh, what I like about this episode is that uh, she's very, very forthcoming about her, her mindset when it comes to writing and how she perceives it, how she approaches it. And um, very honest about, you know, the book business as well, because, you know, being an author is one thing, but, you know, navigating the business that is selling books these days is a very different thing. And, uh, she's very, very honest about that as well. So I, I think you'll get a bunch out of this one. And, uh, as I said, she's an incredible person. So I hope you enjoy this episode, uh, of my chat with Lisa Moore. Pleased and surprised when technology works for me. I'm that person who's, I, I feel like the old man all the time. Now, I don't, how come it won't? Whatever. But my amazing guest today is author. She's a professor. She's a successful speaker. She's done it all. She's got her own podcast. It is Lisa Moore. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Trent. It's a pleasure to be here. And that's true. <laughs> Not even joking. <laughs> How many times have you and I said that where you're kind of like, it's actually not a pleasure to be here, but this is just the robotic thing that's going to come out of my mouth. I'm going to say it. Yeah. No, I think, you know, usually it is a pleasure to to get to talk to people about ideas, right? Yeah. And I've been listening to your podcast and this you're so funny. <laughs> I know you don't need. I know you don't need to hear that from me, but my God, you're really funny. I was up walking in the woods, like you know, I'm around the bay, walking in the woods, up on the barrens, yeah. and you know, killing myself. Laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Scaring yes. birds, scaring the wildlife with your laughter. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks so much. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And, and the great thing about it is I get to talk to interesting people and talented people like yourself. And and also, I've admitted that it's also a little bit of a cheat thing where I get to catch up with people I haven't seen in a long time. So this is the, one of the beauties of technology that it allows us to do that. So where are you right now? It looks like we're in some kind of, I'm like, is this a log cabin? Are we, what, are we in an alpine lodge of some type? Where, where are you right now? It's just a, it's a little, yeah, kind of bay house uh, cabin type thing. Um, but because it's like this room, I can just heat this room. <laughs> we, we actually live in, a, in another house, but like the rest of the house is like a fridge. But in here, it's like a sauna. <laughs> nice, nice. So you got it's funny, I, as I've gotten older, I really appreciated more uh, tranquil settings. Like when I was young, the thoughts of living somewhere remote would have been like, well, there's no bars there. I mean, you can't go out, you can't go to a club, you can't do whatever. I would look at all the things it does not have. And as mm-hmm. I've gotten older, you start going to beautiful places like, you know, the Trinities of the world and Brigus and even more remote places, places in Alberta that I've been to in Nova Scotia. And now it really connects with me. Like, I really get like, oh, I get why someone would actually live here, if not year round, at least part of the time. Like, what has your relationship been with, been like with, like urban centers versus kind of going to a more rural place. Do you find yourself gravitating more to that? Um, Well, the pandemic has taught me to appreciate Outport, Newfoundland in all kinds of weathers. Like I've always loved the summer out here. I'm in Conception Bay North. I've always loved the summer, but we've gone, uh, my husband and I have gone skidooing deep in the like places that you couldn't go in the summer because it's bog and like just astonishing vistas. And um, so, uh, yeah, the, I think the pandemic has taught me to slow down a little bit and, and experience things on a different uh, scale. And I like to think of it as the difference between, uh, you know, skimming vast diff- distances on the surface or just go dropping deep. Yes, yes. It's like the rock that skips across the lake. It's like uh, most of your life has been that skipping across the lake, but eventually the rock stops and goes right to the bottom. And you're like, ah, oh, this is a pretty serene moment. This is pretty, pretty tranquil. I feel the same way. I, I When the pandemic started, I was just really focused on, okay, this thing has happened. It's out of our control. How do you use it to your advantage? And for me, it was, and I've talked about this on the podcast numerous times, but it was about that very thing of pausing, slowing down, asking myself questions about what I wanted to do with my life. How do I want to spend my time? Where do I want to live? Um, and you start, I don't think I would have done that without this global pandemic. I think I would have continued to go on that same clip I was going on, I think. And and so I think you can find, my term is gifts in the rubble. That's what I find. It's like there's, there's always gifts in the rubble of whatever is happening in your life. You guys sort through quite often and dig sometimes. But I think that's one of the things I've discovered as well is just an appreciation for quiet and alone time and serenity in some of these settings. So I'm totally with you there for sure. Yeah. And, and of course, we're talking about uh, because we're in a pretty safe place. Um, um, but, you know, so certainly there is a lot of rubble <laughs> involved yeah, with right, this yeah. pandemic. But if you are lucky enough to f- find some place to be able to go outdoors or, or isolate in comfort, I think it there are things to learn. I think in other places, of course, it's just 
horrific. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, the last time I would have seen you or spoken to you probably would have been with regards to either Canada Reads, I think, perhaps all those years ago. And I would imagine some life has happened to you in between then and now. What have you been doing? I know, I know some of it, but tell folks what you've been doing since your your February days that I was associated with. What, what's been going on in Lisa Moore World? Well, I did go to a show at the Arts and Culture Center yes. where you were performing. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> you were you were amazing and hilarious. Um, I so I've been, I've been trying to write books. Um, I have written books, in fact. So February, I'm trying to think. I think after February came Caught, which was a total blast to write. Uh, So it's it's about, you know, a pot smuggling crew from Newfoundland in the 1970s. Very, very loosely based on a a true story. Um, And I was kind of playing with genre fiction in a way because it's a crime story. Um, but I was also playing with the idea of the 70s and what the 70s is. And so that was really fun. I've written a couple of story collections and um, um, I wrote a young adult novel called Flannery. And I actually wanted to talk to you about that because in that that book, and I have no idea why this happened to me, I sort of let myself be funny in a way that I think I must have been too uptight <laughs> to be funny. And I don't know what it was, but I had the time of my life writing that book. Like it was a, it, I mean, it's, it's shorter and it's, it's about a 16 year old. So, um, but I just remember like sitting at the keys, you know, get laughing to myself, you know, <laughs> and I was thinking that's what it must be like for you all the time. Yeah, I the amount of times I've got strange looks either on a plane or in a coffee shop when I think of something or write something that I that cracks me up and people just look over like, what is this guy? Is this guy just what's he? He's just writing stuff on a piece of paper and now he's crying, laughing. He's like, what is he doing? <laughs> so you're right. Yeah, that is an inside peek as a comedian of, of how we uh, entertain ourselves first. But I guess like any art, at the end of the day, you have to make something that you like. You know, I remember the one of the singers from ZZ Top, one of the band members, said he's like, he goes, make the music you want to hear, write the song you want to hear, and it's like, I I often think about that as someone who creates things. It's like, you can think about commercial success or what you think is going to work, but at the end of the day, you have to be happy with the thing that you are making. It has to connect with you in some in some way. Do you do you find it hard to walk that line? Like when you're writing. Is the reader in your head or are you just totally fully engaged in your process right now? How it's coming out of you, how you're flowing, or does that critic mind sneak in from time to time and go, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get that. They don't know that reference, but you know, like what is how do you balance that? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think there are layers, and I think you have to work on all those layers uh, at once in a way. But the best, the funnest time to write is when for me is like I write it, I get up at about five. And at that time, you know, I am that critic is turned off. That critic has it takes the critic uh, an hour or more to wake up. 
It's just the, the rest of me. The, the critic's a night owl, so he, so they <laughs> yeah. sleep in. Yeah, I he, the critic has been keeping me tossing and turning all night, but then the critic is zonked. <laughs> and I I think really like when you're writing a a novel, especially, um, I mean, because I write short stories too, but with a novel, uh, you you kind of have to see the scenes unfolding before your eyes. And I have always been sort of um, suspicious of people who say, oh, the story just came out, you know, out of nowhere, voices in my head and all that. But I I do think there is a little bit of that where when you sit down, yes, you kind of know where you're going for sure. Like you have an idea, but things pop out that are unexpected. And I do think it's because, you know, at that hour in the morning, anyway, the the mind is soft. That's the way I think of it. And and the and the subconscious is at work and has been at work all night while you're dreaming or yeah. whatever you're doing like when you're asleep. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I guess that's why folks talk about uh, morning pages and journaling first thing in the morning is I guess that part of your brain has not woken up yet to start filtering things to start choosing what's good what's bad what you should think what you should write it's just kind of flowing out of you so it's it's amazing and i would imagine at that time for you when you wake up that early like you have complete serenity in that moment like quiet to just focus and then settle in yeah and it's you know usually dark outside and um yeah and it's kind of you know, romantic and like metaphorical that as the writing gets going, the sun comes up. It's like, whoa, did I do that? (laughs) I just wrote that. I just wrote the sun came up and showed your shit the cat. What else can I type? Okay. There's $5 million in my bank account. (laughs) Check on my banking. So what about you? When do you write best or do you have a critic or do you have an audience in your head or how does that work? Yeah, it's that dance between the two. I think I try to write from a a very pure place for myself and what I think and my own experience and what I'm taking. But I also have to realize I have to, to communicate this to an audience of people, especially as a comedian, because my my process has to go in front of people just to make it like I, I can make it on my own and write it and jot it down and rehearse it. But I won't know until I go in front of an audience if that's going to resonate or not. And sometimes it's just a word or they don't understand the exact premise that you started with. So that's why there's confusion. But all that gives me data back. But I can't start from that place, if that makes any sense. I have to start with what's what am I going through? What did I just notice? And I start there and then it's a polishing process over time with different audiences to find out what's actually connecting. There are some bits, and comedians will admit this, there are sometimes bits that you know don't necessarily hit very well, but but you like them, you know? <laughs> they're, they're just your thing where you go, yeah, I get that that doesn't knock the roof off the place, but I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that, you know? Um, yeah, I think after, it was after uh, Canada Reads, uh, when you so eloquently um, talked about February, uh, I wrote a play based on the novel. And one of the things that I, I mean, okay. So first of all, what you're saying about being in front of an audience, the, the first time that play was um, staged, it was in Toronto and it was uh, by a professional amateur theater company. Um, There were a lot of people there to my 
tremendous fear and the feeling of sitting in the dark before they came out and said those things, because I'm not normally there when someone's experiencing what I've written, you know, if I'm lucky enough to have someone read it, but whoa, was that ever, oh my gosh, it was really scary. I I mean, it's really scary. (laughs) It's scary. And this was all scripted and it wasn't even me on stage. Right. But you felt vulnerable in that moment because you're being you're being kind of critiqued and measured. It's because it's your thing at the end of the day. Right. Yes. And the, and most of the audience are don't know I'm there, probably. And also it's dark. Yeah. So they don't know. And so I'm watching them without them really realizing that I'm watching, them, you know, <laughs> exactly. but. Yeah. So, you know, the the book, of course, is about the ocean ranger sinking, uh, which is a tragedy. But because it is about the life of a family uh, who lose someone on the Ocean Ranger uh, and, it, and it goes over an extended period of time, like I think 27 years, there there is humor in the stage play. I wrote the humor into the stage play. And in Toronto, they really seem to play it for the laughs. And the audience was laughing and it was a tremendous power. I, you know, to, I felt that, oh, I had made people laugh, but later a close friend of mine said, you know, they didn't play the tragedy. It wasn't as evident Mm -hmm. uh, in Toronto, but when they did it at rising tide in Newfoundland, they didn't play the jokes. Right. And it was so fascinating to me because it was the same words yeah, just just yeah, just presented differently and different performance. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. That is fascinating to try and walk that line because it. You know, I remember when you and I talked before Canada Reads, and I often attribute. Obviously, you wrote the book and did an amazing job. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. But I, I often say your words to me before we went to start the show was just kind of like make it your own, you know, like this is your thing that you've, you've read and like you can plug your own life into it, but just make it your own. And that's what people do with art in general, right? As we performers do it when they get a piece of material or a script, um, you'll hear musicians do different inclinations of songs that have been around for 50 years and someone can put a different spin on it. And it's, that's the beautiful human element of it. I think is that any piece of work, any piece of art that can be performed there's a human element to that and that humanity will come through based on who that person is and their own experience, you know? And so with that play, it's, it's, I would imagine that would be amazing to, to sit and watch how different audiences perceive it, but also how different performers perform it. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, in talking about what you were saying about being physically present and getting to use your body and getting to use your face and, and tone and all of that stuff. Like those are very powerful things because there's an immediacy, like this human physical bodily experience of, of the material, but with a, with a book, when someone is reading a book and they, they slip into the kind of fictive dream of it where, you know, they can see the scene unfold in their mind's eye and they don't even exist anymore because they're in the scene in some way. They are in control of things like pacing, like if someone is describing uh, like a hat, a yellow hat, then it's 
like a particular shade of yellow mm -hmm. and the reader is deciding that. So like in a way there is less control over the reader. Like you're, you're giving up control in a way and timing, like how long it takes them to read a scene. Whereas even in a film, the film is unfolding like at the speed that the film is unfolding. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I find that stuff interesting and also just whether a body is engaged or not in the reading. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I, I often wonder for you guys because I feel the same way with musicians. I guess they create an album or a song. They work tirelessly on it. You've, you've edited, you've scaled down, you've had, you know, 50 songs to start. You get it down to 12 for an album. You're really happy with it. You've labored over it. And then you put it out in the world and then you have to wait to see what the outside world thinks about this thing you've worked so hard at. And the same thing for you as an author. It's like the same process. There's research. There's, there's all the stuff that goes into it, things you cut out, and then you put it out in the world and you have to kind of wait. And I heard musicians say they don't finish an album. They just abandon it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, get this thing out of here. I don't want to see it anymore. Or the record label is saying like, there's a hard deadline. We want it for you. It's like a publisher who's like, you know, look, Lisa, we need, you know, and and what is that moment like for you? Like, what what is it like to hand over something and say, I don't know, because I get to change it every night. You know what I mean? So my mm. process is is different than yours in the sense that while I'm creating, the audience is telling me immediately whether they're getting it or not. I can always tweak it. But for you, once your book's out in the world, your book's out in the world, there is no changing it. Like, how do you navigate that? Well, I mean, the book does change, even though it's out in the world, because, you know, I think of February which was really about a, a particular moment, I think, um, you know, and a particular grief and everything. But recently, like a couple of years ago, I was at a conference, an academic conference, and I read from the book and talked about the book. And I realized that for me and for the audience, the book was really about climate crisis at that point. Right. It was really about the oil industry and, you know, the fact that we're on the brink of, you know, disaster. And like it was a it, it, it was as though the. Uh, the context, the context had changed dramatically because when I was writing about that book and even talking about it, like at the time, um, I was I was thinking about climate crisis. I was thinking about the, you know, the environment and all that, but in a very different way. I don't think I think that co the conversation about those things has evolved. And for me, the book has changed. And actually, I am working with a composer um, in New York. Her name is Laura Kaminsky. And we're doing um, an opera of February. Wow. And we yes, with opera on the Avalon. Um, so, you know, and I actually knew very little about opera. And I, that is such an understatement. <laughs> so, yeah, this, me too. this woman was saying about Helen, the main character, she was saying, so what are you thinking? Um, are you thinking a, a mezzo or a soprano? And I was like, well, what are you thinking? Laura? <laughs> She said, I'm thinking a mezzo and I'm me too. Totally mezzo. That's what I was going to go with mezzo. 
<laughs> good, good cover. Good cover. Yeah. But then, like after we had been working together for a year, I find myself in the kitchen saying to my husband, uh, you need to turn down the stove because you're going to burn the pizza. But I'm hearing, turn down the stove. <laughs> Because the pizza's burning. <laughs> Everything is a performance, operatic performance. Well, I can just, just in my head, like my husband has no idea <laughs> <laughs> that he has become the tragic hero of a yeah. oven fire. He's just like, this is done. I don't know why I see. That's the end of Act One. What? Just get the pizza. Yeah, what is that? What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, I think. It's funny, like once you go down a rabbit hole, I found myself with this with uh, different topics, whether I'm writing something myself, trying to get into something, or just an interest I may have. Like you go down these rabbit holes and you can't get out of it. You know, like you, for you now, maybe that's that is the rabbit hole of just opera and that world. And so you look, you're wearing those glasses now, and everything is through that lens, and it's it's a beautiful thing because it kind of takes you out of your own reality, and now you look at the world a little bit differently. Um, I do find that amazing that that those themes kind of emerge and they pop up. And I guess when you have a book that has multiple themes in it, as it evolves and as other readers read it from different eras, they will highlight different things. Different things will call out to them. And I think musicians have the same with music. It's like a song can actually be about one thing, but 10 years later, 15 years later, it feels very different. Same words, same music, but it, it somehow resonates differently with people. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm just having that, just remembering that we had this, um, we had a rehearsal of just the libretto. So with actors, just, uh, just reading it, they're not singing it because the music hasn't been written yet, but they're reading it. And Cheryl Hickman, who is the artistic director of opera on the Avalon, there's a scene at the Basilica, which is the sort of funeral after the, after the ocean ranger disaster and the actors are reading it out. And then she said, look, I'll, and it said, there was a note, a stage note that said, we need um, uh, a hymn here. And so the actors were reading and she just began uh, to sing amazing grace. And immediately like tears came up in everyone's eyes. You know, it was just chilling. And she said, that's the power of the human voice. That's what happens. Like you have someone sing and suddenly bang, it's just a completely different emotional experience. Yeah. So again, like, you know, returning to that notion of the difference between what, what, what you do when you're on a stage, like I have been thinking about you <laughs> because I've been <laughs> listening to your podcast and I'm just thinking about how vulnerable it is to be out there. Yeah. It's a, it's a fine because we're all people and human beings, you're going through other things in your life. But I know at eight o'clock, people are like, we paid money and like, we're here to laugh. Like there's no, and you know, I've talked to musicians about this too, but like there's nowhere to hide, right? It's like, I can't go, well, guitar solo from this guy while I go over here and sort myself. It's like, nope, it's you for the full hour. Bring it next, next joke, next joke. And so you do have to be in a bit of a mental headspace to be able to to go, am I ready for this tonight? Because it's it's all on my shoulders, right? So, yeah, you, you feel that sometimes. But then the other day, I go, you know, people are here for a good time. I just I flip it. Go, people are here for a good time. They paid money. They got a babysitter. Uh, they got their own problems and troubles in their life, and they just want to come out and laugh. And so then you feel like everyone's on your side before you even start. So I do a little a little mind trick, a little mind hack. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it it it, uh, it does help. Um, all right. I want to take. I want you to take me back to young Lisa. Take me back to young Lisa. That's a long. Way. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a town, doesn't it? Oh yeah. What, you what do you mean? Highway. What do you mean? Ten minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> When we started, you mean this podcast? No, uh, that we were young Lisa. Oh uh, right, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, it, it's I, I find it amazing. Like I've uh, I've talked to a lot of people, obviously, on, on podcasts, and just people's journey to their career path and what uh, what called out to them and how early it called out to them. For you, when what was what was it like growing up? Like, what were you? What was your household like? What was when did reading come on the radar in terms of like, you know, reading and, and, and writing and it's going to be a career? Walk me through that a little bit. Uh, well, I, I grew up in Portugal Cove. And at the time that was, you know, it was a I went to school in St. John's, but it was a 20 minute drive back and forth. Um, and we were surrounded by woods and uh, there was a pond where we could swim in or skate in the summer. It's just my sister and I and my mom and dad. Uh, until my dad died when I was 16. And um, we read a lot, my sister and I, and we read, you know, it was young adult stuff and, um, you know, Nancy Drew and uh, Judy Bloom and anything we could get our hands on. Um, and my dad used to tell us stories too at night when we, he would, he would make up stories as we were going to sleep, put us to sleep that way. I mean, his stories were fantastic, but you know, (laughs) they didn't put us to sleep because we were bored. They put us to sleep because we were children who had to sleep. Um, So, but I could hear him making up stories and, you know, we were the characters in the stories and all of that. So I don't know if I, I I think it wasn't until I got to uh, I went to art school first, um, but I came back to St. John's because I needed to do a few academic courses to finish my degree. And there was a creative writing class taught by Larry Matthews. And he was from Ottawa originally, and he really behaved (laughs) like that. The people in the class could be writers if they wanted to be. And we were writing stuff and and reading it to each other. Um, And he was, you know, giving us feedback. We were giving each other feedback. And I think that's when it occurred to me, I could do this with my life. Um, But I, my parents had always been, they were always with both my sister and I, uh, they had this notion we could, we could do or be whatever we wanted. And we were free to do or be whatever we wanted. Um, they never, for instance, said to me, uh, do you think that might be a little financially insecure? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> they never said a thing like that. Right. Um, what about you? Did anybody say, I don't know if there's a lot of money in that? <laughs> oh, no. I, I think that's kind of a blessing, too, because I feel like, yeah. you know, no one. I have friends of mine who um I wouldn't, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but uh, have been kind of guided into the family business or whatever, you know, they worked at their father's store when they were younger. And eventually the plan is that you're going to take over the store or the car dealership or whatever it is. And I, you know, sometimes you can look at that and say, well, look at that. It's, it's job security. It's financial security. But I would have looked at that like a prison because I, I didn't know what I wanted to do yet, but I would have known it's not that. You know, and would have been, okay, well, I, I don't know how I'm going to figure out my path, but I don't want to be railroaded into something that I 
feel I have to do or some kind of uh, obligation. And I think there's a beauty to that. There's a beauty to, to having the canvas blank and being mm-hmm. able to figure, live, live some life and figure out what it is you want to do. Because I didn't discover stand-up until I was 30. You know, like I bounced around working with kids and stuff and community centers and boys and girls club and all that stuff. And I enjoyed it. I still knew that wasn't a thing. And then when I went on stage the first time, I was like, oh, that's, I found it. This is a thing, you know, so it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful moment, but it was, it's, I feel bad for those people who, you know, right. Don't have parents who are saying, go be whatever you want, you know, because that takes vulnerability on their part to say, we trust you'll figure it out. We, we, our reputation is not mired in what Lisa becomes or doesn't become. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think times have changed, you know, like I think especially in Newfoundland, things are so much more precarious now financially. In fact, you know, we're on the edge of an abyss financially. Yeah. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> um, but. So I think it, I imagine it must be very hard for parents to not try to guide uh, children into sort of more secure uh, economic situations in terms of work at this point. Like it must be very difficult to let go. I think, you know, in the 70s, it, it was easier for my parents to I, I just think it was probably easier for them to say, go be what you want to be. I mm. think now, um, I still think it's the right thing to do, but I think it must be much more difficult. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think it's because I guess that parental nature is to protect and to, mm-hmm. you know, forecast danger around the corner. I remember when I graduated, the big thing was uh, OIT. IT is hiring. You got to get an IT, but oh yeah, that's where the jobs are. Go up, do your thing. It's nine months. You got a job, but no one ever asked if that's what your interest was or passion was. It was just they're hiring. And I think on the East Coast in particular, many things were done just with the sense of it's a paycheck. I don't care what you love to do. It's what your passion is irrelevant. You don't sit around here when there are jobs available. Go take that thing. So. I think that would have been the only pressure I would have felt was just that you should be doing something and you shouldn't be sitting around if you can, you know, find a job somewhere, just go find that thing. Um, and I think that was probably the only pressure I would have felt, you know, to do that to, to some regard. But um, it, it's a weird thing as an artist, I find too, because it's so much of it is just a blind leap of faith, right? Like for you, you decide, okay, I'm going to start writing things and putting them out into the world. How, like you must have been terrified, were you not? Yes. Well, you know, I I fell in love with my husband very young. I, I was um, we got married when we were twenty three. Nobody that I knew did that, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and also, I think we had been together for six months. Uh, so <laughs> Let's go. Let's yeah. That's all I need to see. Let's go. We're doing it. I was like, this journey. is the guy for me. <laughs> I'm not letting him get away. Well, you know, but, you know. Yeah. And it's not that I now I probably wouldn't get married because I see it as a kind of, yeah, you don't need it, you know, yeah, you don't yeah, need yeah. it. But <laughs> anyway, somehow we did get married and we went to Toronto and he was doing a PhD. And my plan was to stay home in the house and write write a book of short stories, like not even a novel, like a book of short stories. (laughs) And uh, as if this was like, when I think back to that 
young woman, like I, I, I would, I would have probably said to her, gee, do you think maybe you should get out in the world a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I did waitress. I was waitressing at the same time, but I I have no idea how I I managed to focus on that. And I, I, I did write the stories and I sent them to small literary journals. And after a time they started to get published and it was, it was just, it was thrilling, you know, Like, I remember the very first story I published was in a a journal uh, that had a a bunch of Newfoundland writers in it. It was a Newfoundland um, issue. And but I was in Toronto and I went to a bookstore in the pouring rain and I had been going like once every you know week or something to see if the journal was there and, and it was never there. <laughs> right. You're like, oh, done. See you next week. Yeah. yeah. So on this particular day, I was walking to the back of the bookstore and you know, water was sloshing out of my sneakers. I was soaked to the skin. And there was there was the journal with my story in it in a bookstore in Toronto. And it I guess I had sort of expected that might happen, but it just felt it just felt like a, a whole different world that, you know, anybody in Canada m- would have access to this story. Yeah. Not that they necessarily read it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it they could have. Yeah. They could have. And it was <laughs> it was thrilling. The notion of, of the kind of connection that could happen through yeah. writing. It's incredible to put something out in the world and realize this thing that started in your head or I've had ideas come to me in the shower, you know, and you just go, okay, well, I'm going to take that on stage tomorrow night or whatever. And then that thing just gives all these this, these people this much pleasure and joy, this little tiny spark of a thing that just, I don't know where it came from. It, it wasn't there yesterday. And here yeah. it is today. It, it, it is absolute magic. One of the books that I read uh, a couple of years ago, and I try and listen to it as an audio book at least once a year. It's this book by uh, Liz Gilbert called Big Magic. Have you, have you read that book or listened to it? No. It's about creativity and different, you know, um, theories over the years and like where creativity comes from. And uh, what I thought was really interesting is she talks about how, you know, in ancient Roman times and Greek times, when people would say genius, they meant that there was a spirit out there. And if you were lucky enough to be vulnerable enough, the spirit would go through you during a performance and you would make this magical thing, but then it was free to go back into the walls and go into the next person. But then the Western world, we adopted genius to mean I, the individual, am a genius. And everything I make, therefore, is brilliant. You know, we made it such an ego thing. Yes. And I think great creativity comes when you let go of the ego thing. Like you can still be personal and vulnerable, but it's that just you're just a vehicle and this is coming through you and do not take too much credit for what's happening. What's your approach to your to your own writing? Does any of that resonate? Oh, it resonates completely. You know, I'm thinking of and I it, it's a quote, but I, I do not know which poet said it. It's about poetry that in order to write a poem, uh, it's it's as unlikely to write a great poem as it is to get struck by lightning. But you have to go out into the middle of the field when the thunder and lightning storm is happening and just stand there and wait for it. Like it's like yeah. being hit by grace. And um, also, you know, I, I do kind of believe that um, all books 
are stepping on the shoulders of the books that came before. And we live in this world of stories that we do all own. You know, like we are all part of this world of stories. And and, and that for me is like a, an even more sort of concrete way of thinking of this idea of communal genius that goes through or that you channel is that we are, you know, we don't like if you wanted to paint a tree, the tree is a composite of all the trees you've ever seen in your life. But it's also a composite of all the paintings of the tree you've ever seen in your life. Right. And that is the tree that you get. And that is also the novel that you get. Like, yeah. you know, I think I think it is really, really true that we can't we can't accept uh, we we can't feel that we own our books in quite the same way as 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 we're often you know taught to think about it i think you're right absolutely yeah i think it's it was it was really eye-opening for me that that discussion and that part of her book because what it did for me is it took the pressure off of trying to be perfect and trying to be the next thing you create has got to be this or it's got to get this many views or whatever, because you realize like you're it's so much of it's out of your control anyway. So why do you think that you are controlling all the factors and all the levers to make this mm. thing be what you think it's supposed to be? It's like, mm. no, you're going to make this thing. And after you make this thing, you're going to make another thing. And after you make that thing, you're going to like, and then the other things are going to take care of themselves. How it resonates, doesn't resonate. It doesn't matter. You've already moved on to the next Project and that's why twenty two minutes has been so beneficial for me as someone who's creating stuff is because that's how the show works. It's like we're already on to the next week. By the time people see what we've done last week, we've already moved on. Great week, bad week, doesn't matter. Moving on to the next thing, and it's allowed you to not be as precious, you know, and just mm -hmm. kind of engage, put your hat on, do it, and then you move on to the next thing. And uh, I that took a lot of pressure off my shoulders because for you, that's actually a good segue into this next thing is that. Being an artist, creating something, an author is very different than navigating the book business. So for people who are, have no idea how the book business works, what would be the cold notes, um, the human experience of being part of, of a, a creative who's in a business? What is that yeah. like? Uh, well, it's tricky because what becomes a bestseller is not always what has uh the artistic integrity so you know you, you or and someone else might write the book of the century that is just chock-a-block full of artistic integrity and vision but that may not sell that may not be like you know a number of agents might look at it a number of publishers publishers might look at it and they might go, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and this has happened throughout history, of course, you know, lots of people have become famous after they died, never, ever wrote, sold anything or had anyone read anything until, you know, they were dead and yeah. never knew that they had achieved whatever they achieved for sure. I mean, they must have felt it or they wouldn't have kept writing. Right. Um, so then you have to wonder, I think in terms of finances, it's a bit of a lottery. Um, and in terms of just the thing of getting a book into people's hands, it's a tremendous amount of work and luck. Um, when, when I started writing, I was in a writing group. We called ourselves the Burning Rock. And we came out of that creative writing class. And 
we applied for a grant from ACOA to, we put together a, a collection of stories, had it published, and then we applied for a grant to tour across Canada with that book, um, where we each got to read on different stages in different places. But we actually, there are photographs of us with like boxes of books on our head, walking down the sidewalk and bringing them to bookstores. Right. Well, now, if you want to be on in the front window of chapters, your publisher has to pay a tremendous amount of money or even to be on the table in the front of chapters, you know, where it says uh, local favorites or, you know, yeah. bestseller or whatever. That, that, that is choice uh, advertising that, that publishing companies have to pay for. So nobody would have taken a group of Newfoundlanders and said, oh, yeah, give us a couple of those. We'll sell those for you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at this stage of the game. So I think it's a very complicated um, thing. And you have to have you have to have a lot of faith. Yeah, it, it's, I find it uh, incredible because I think the goal is to not have your, the joy of creating something is to not have that eroded by those things, by the business itself and the game that you have to play and the tennis match and the make sure you give a shout out to this and this hashtag and all this stuff. You're like, this is not my gut in any of this shit. Like, well, well, I just want to make my jokes and go do the thing. Well, if you want the next thing, you got to play this game. And so, I think you're right. The other day, you're probably sitting back going, what games do I want to play? And what things am I willing to go? I'm fine if that doesn't happen because I'm not willing to pay that price to get yeah. that result, you know? And also, you have to be, one has to be careful about competition because, you know, really artists are, even, even the most successful artists are not as successful as the most successful banker, let's say, uh, or the right. most successful CEO. Right. And so I think we have to have each other's backs, you know, like we really have to uh, recognize and remind ourselves all the time um, that this is, that somehow, yes, you know, we do need to be paid. Of course we need to be paid in order to live. And, uh, and work as hard as people do work. But uh, also we have, like, I think artistic production is often outside um, because often artistic production is about critiquing society, mm -hmm. you know? And so in a way you can't be beholding to anyone if yeah. you're going, like there can't be any sacred cows. Yeah. And um, that's a tricky, that's a tricky dance as well. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It, it, you'll put on a pair of a very different pair of glasses if if you're writing from that from that point of view. And that's what I keep saying to people, comedians who want to start comedy or people who want to get entertainment. It's like getting some clarity as to what it is that you want and what is it you don't want, because you'll find yourself off in the bushes pretty quick if you're either chasing money or quick success or fame. And I think people end up being very, very lost that way. That's why I feel so bad for these celebrities who you see, you know, in Hollywood with all this money and success and fame, and they're struggling with all these issues. And you realize that I think it's a very dark day when you think, you know, a certain amount of money or a certain amount of success is going to make all the pain go away or that mm -hmm. fill that hole, whatever that is for you. And then you realize that it doesn't because now that was your, that was your last parachute that you had was, well, when I get that movie or when I get that bestseller, and then you wake up feeling the exact same way the next day. I think that's a dark, dark day for people, you know? Yeah. 
Success yeah. is, is not a is not a band-aid or a cure for for whatever that inner turmoil you have or the issue you have unresolved. It's like they'll still be there in the morning, but you'll have more money, but they'll still, still be yeah. there in the morning. So yeah. it's uh it, it's a scary time for people. Okay, so Lisa Moore wants to write a book. So you tell me what that process is like for you, like from the inkling of an idea to like, hmm, that's piqued my interest. Like, take me right through to like, now we're going into our daily process of actual banging this thing out. What is that like? How long does that take for you in general? Are there certain things that have to happen for you to be able to go to the next step and next stage? Walk me through that. Um. Well, you know, I, I think that somehow I forget who I am. Um, and like, for instance, in writing Caught, which was, you know, about this huge drug bust from the 70s, um, pot. And, uh, the, and, and in the novel, the characters have to sail down the coast of uh from British Columbia to Columbia. And, you know, there's all of these things I knew nothing about. I don't smoke pot (laughs) just because it puts me to sleep. Uh, Although I think it's great that it's, uh, I think it's very great that it's been legalized because that was a big part of the book is the injustice of people going to jail for this endeavor. But I also didn't know how anything about sailing. I didn't know how, like, I didn't know anything. Um, There was so much to learn to write that book. And if I had stopped for a second and thought, you know, you really don't know any of this. (laughs) I never, I would have written something else, (laughs) but I didn't because I was overwhelmed by the idea of I really felt like the the two guys who were the main protagonists of this novel were chasing after freedom, that they believed in freedom, that freedom was a thing that, you know, you could what and it's complicated because um, what if you what are you free from? Well, responsibility. But if you don't have a responsibility to others, what do you have? Like, isn't responsibility to others a kind of love? And what is life without love? And um, in a way, those two men probably had a a kind of uh, bromance, you know, I think. Um, And so uh, that was what I wanted to chase after. And uh, while I was writing, and so it took me four years to write the novel and it generally takes me four years to write a novel. Um, You know, my, my editor was, uh, so I had the guy, I don't know, for I'd say about two and a half, maybe three years, the guy was running from the law across Canada. Like he was going across Canada in the different cities. (laughs) And my editor was saying, yes, very good. Well, but is he going to get on the boat ever? (laughs) (laughs) He's in Saskatoon this week, and he's, he's, he's in Thompson, Manitoba. Now we get- <laughs> he's got to get to Columbia, Lisa. For God's <laughs> sake, put him on the goddamn yacht. <laughs> like, I don't even know how big the yacht is. <laughs> yeah, I haven't figured that out yet. That's why I got him going through all the provinces here in the major city. Yeah, so in you know in this in the real life story that book was loosely based on the guys went back up to British Columbia and they got caught there. But in the novel, I didn't, I just didn't know how to like, it didn't make sense. 
because the novel had changed a, a fair bit from, well, it changed completely from the real story. But I, you know, and I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, bunch of Newfoundlanders, where, where are they going to go if they're on the run? And I thought, back to Newfoundland. They got to go back to Newfoundland. Right. So I had to get them through the Panama Canal. And I was like, gee, I wonder what the Panama Canal is. <laughs> I wonder they can get home. Anyway, a friend of mine gave me the email of a guy who apparently was independently wealthy and spent his life um, sailing all over the world. So I wrote this guy and I said, hi, writing a novel, got to get two tons of pot through the Panama Canal and then back up to Newfoundland. Need to do it in two weeks because that's when they got to get there. According to the timeline, guy writes back maps, uh, maps of, of sand shoals they would have to avoid, places where they would have to avoid the, you know, um, Coast Guard, how to get through the Panama Canal. The boat would we be weighed down by the weight. So, you know, they'd have to pay people off. It would take them this many days to get through. the. I'm like, thank you very much. <laughs> 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 then I send it off to my editor and she's like, whoa. <laughs> Details amazing. Yeah. yeah. So that, you know, every now and then I find it easiest to do research by talking to people. Right. Yeah. It's harder to look up that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, someone who's actually done it, you know, like that, like that detail about the weight of the boat, for example, it's like, that's only someone who's done that stuff would, would, would know those things, you know? Oh, I mean, he sailed. I don't think he was actually. No, no, no. I just, I just mean, no, no. We're not implying that this person was involved certain, in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> no, I'm certain he wasn't. No, no, he just, but he would know. He had probably gone through the Panama Canal mm -hmm. in a sailboat. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. yeah, you're so right. It's, it's the, the lived experience that people have had. It's, uh, that's a wealth of knowledge, just talking to people. Remember when people did that all the time? Just spoke to people and yes, grandparents yeah. about their lives and what things were like and yeah, you could read that in a book or you could sit down and listen to this person. And um, that's why podcasting is so amazing. Um, yeah. So you so you do the research four years, you're saying, is it like, does Lisa more change as a person during this process? Like, are, are people like, oh, we don't talk to Lisa when she's writing a book. Lisa has no but she, she becomes that other person when she's writing the book. If she doesn't have her coffee in the morning, she just like, like, is there another mask you put on when you go into writer mode? Or do you feel like it just is seamlessly just part of your life and how you just go about your daily things anyway? I try to, I try to do it when, like I said, when people are asleep, because I am, I, I paint as well. Right. Um, and when I'm painting, I'm, I, I can have a conversation, you know, we, people are coming through and, you know, my family, the living room, wherever I am, and we can talk. And, but when I'm writing, it, it is really like, I'm not there. Like right. I, they, they're talking to me and I'm not here. I can't even hear them, you know, when it's, when it's full on. Yeah. So I think, I think that's a, it's a little alienating. <laughs> they'd rather if I was present a little bit, you know, <laughs> but I think you do have to, to get in the world. You got to, you got to be in the world. You're in there. Yeah, that's right. You got to immerse yourself in it. It's, uh, 
It, yeah, I find it amazing. I understand why bands go off to these studios and they're there for five months or three months. It's mm. like you're creating an environment with which to just immerse yourself in this one thing. And then once you obsess about that one thing for that much time and it's done, you can come back out to the real world. But you almost need, for me as a comedian in particular, I need to live a bunch of life to have the coffers full enough to take mm. on stage. So there's always that fine balance of walking through the world and noticing something and putting that in your mind and then or putting a note in your phone and then realizing I'll, I'll probably be able to use that later or tomorrow or whatever, but you're just harvesting stuff all the time from just yeah. life experience, you know? Yes. Yeah. I, I heard you uh, talking about uh, the fact that you've, you've done stand up in places where they want new material every week yeah, yeah. and it kind of made me, you know, freeze in my tracks uh, because that's a lot of material, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, and again, you don't know, like you don't have the familiarity of the rhythm of it, the beats of it. Where I pause here, I know that this is like I don't know exactly where the laughs are yet. And I'll only get that by doing it over and over and over repetition. But if you're making me do a brand new five every week, you never get to polish that original five that I did, you know. And that for me, one of the duties of being a stand-up comedian on the West in Calgary was they would send you off to these small towns, a legion in, you know, uh, Coronation, Alberta, and you're going into a legion, you're like, well, good luck to you. Now you're doing 30 minutes and you're like, well, I got to piece together a bunch of these five minute chunks and put it all into a 30 minute thing and trying to find segues from one topic to the next. And all that's only done with extended sets that allow you to build this bigger thing. But when you're in a place like Toronto or some of these more urban centers around the world, if you're only getting five minutes at a time, how do you get time to build that bigger body of work, right? It's, it's, you need extended sets to build this bigger thing. Where, where would you say, this is a hard question, but like, can you think of a spot anywhere in the world that you've performed that like stood out, uh, not necessarily because of the audience or maybe because of the audience or the place or the theater or the bar or the, like a place that comes back to you. Um, Amazing. I, I walked out on some big stages where I thought, how is little old me going to fill this space? And I don't just mean audience. I mean, like, in terms of performance, like this thing houses the Nutcracker, you know, and I'm just me with a microphone and a stool with a bottle of water on it. And I'm supposed to take up all, all this space. I remember walking out on the National Arts Center stage in Ottawa many years ago for a show I was doing there. And I remember doing the sound check and I looked at this stage, Lisa, and I thought, you could play basketball on this thing. You could put a basketball net on that end and a basketball net on that end and play five on five wow. basketball. And meanwhile, it's just me in the middle of it with this microphone. And so if you let that get into your psyche too much, it can be overwhelming and you feel crushed by the moment. But then you have to quickly switch gears and go like, no, no, you're, you're ready for this and, and doing it. Um, and just step into what you do normally and just do the thing and trust that it'll arrive You know when you need it. Um, but I, I had a cool moment at Holy Heart Theater actually when the first time I played there and I sold it out and we were doing sound check and uh, it wasn't sold out yet and it was we sold quite a few tickets but whatever this lady came down she goes well uh, that's it that's all the tickets sold out and I went what she's like yeah sold out and I guess Holy Heart at the time was like close to a thousand whatever and I was like 
what, what do you mean? What do you, what, what's going on? She's like, yeah, no, it's sold out. So it's a show tonight. And I remember just walking backstage like, oh my God, now they're coming. So it's just a different set of anxiety, right? First it was like, we're not going to sell enough tickets. Now it's like, no, they sold out. And I'm like, oh God, I got to give these people a show now. Oh, shit. Like, so it doesn't end, right? It doesn't end. No, no. So it's, it's, it's one of those things, but I've had those moments. For you as an author, what has been a moment where you kind of thought like, Wow, that was that was one of those things where you thought this is a pretty cool thing to experience, and maybe had not envisioned you would have had that experience when you first started. Um. Well, one time uh, there was a uh, I read I was reading from from February, and it was in a it was in a new shopping mall in Toronto somewhere. I, I don't think it even lasted the shopping mall. I think it shut down and it had an open air concept. Uh, so like there was, I don't, there was no roof on parts of it. I don't know where it was or what the heck, but anyway, it was reading under like fluorescent lights and, um, you know, noise and air conditioners or whatever it is. And the shot, you know, the, the cash registers and it was that kind of thing. And, but I was reading and I just was into it and, um, and the place fell away. It, it, it was the opposite of like reading in a great place. You know, it was the opposite of that. It was, and I, I just, yeah, the people lined up to buy the book afterwards and people were crying like they were buying the book. And I remember this one woman, um, she she came up and she was she like, so people were this book is about February is about loss, as you know. And so people felt it, whether they had lost someone through death or through divorce or through it, like many different things. And this woman came up and she was completely overwhelmed. She had read the book. She was crying. She wanted me to sign it. She could barely talk. She was crying so hard. She was, oh, I just love this book. You know, I'm divorced and uh, I, it really spoke to me. And uh, I mean, the ending is really bad. And I, said, I said, pardon? And she said, well, come on, the ending is terrible. I mean, you know, what? She's on a beach and she's in love with someone else. That's ridiculous. But the rest of the book. Was- oh, my God. I said, oh, thank you very much. Next. Next. Can we get her a towel? Next. Yeah. What do got going on here? That's amazing. That's amazing. It was so funny. And it was straight from the heart. And right. I actually have considered her that criticism, you know. Um, I do take in, like, some criticism, and maybe you find this too, I don't know. Some criticism is, like, it just it just eats away at me and I, you know, st- I walk around Kitty Vitty Lake and I'm storming and I'm saying stuff to the person in my head, you know, for years, for years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's where I put it. You put them in the old, uh, the argument simulator in the shower and I start going, yeah, I'll say, this is another thing. You have no idea how hard it is to do all this stuff. It'll never get sent, but. Yeah. But, but some of it is exactly right, you know, and, and people can say it when they, when they're sincere, when they, when they're just reaching out to you with what they think and there's no ego involved. um, It, it it can be the exact opposite of 
of diminishing or, you know, and, and it can be in, instead a gift, like where you go, oh, now I understand more about what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's such a weird thing, isn't it? Criticism, because what we do for a living is, you know, you make this thing, you put it out in the world, you know, it's going to get criticized. You know, it's literally, there's a job for people who are called critics. That's what they do. That's what they, that's what they, they're going to take your thing and go, it's time to criticize this thing. And then you have social media and it just doesn't. But you're right. I've had people go like, oh, that joke, if you added that line or if you whatever, or when you said this, and a part of you has heard a little bit at first, and then you go, hmm, actually, that's an interesting point. I never ever thought, never looked at it that way. It changed perspective, but it's always the tone in which someone delivers that, you know, yeah. or the, the manner in which they do it. Um, but I feel, I feel for young people now who are putting stuff out in the world because the bullets are fast and furious and yeah. no right cruelty. Like it's not even about the work anymore, it's about your appearance or about whatever. It's just, and I'm like, how do you, as a as a young person coming up to be an artist, a musician, an author, or whatever, put yourself out there and armor up for what's inevitably going to happen? And I think, um, you know, it's easier said than done. But I think the uh, I think the answer, yeah, and it's it's far worse than when I began. Like it was much easier. People might be criticizing you all over the place, but without social media, you would never know. Couldn't <laughs> <laughs> hear it. <laughs> But I think the thing is to recognize you're going to make mistakes. Like we make mistakes. We make all kinds of mistakes. And art is, is political. It's always political because we're, we're defining, we're trying to define what life is. And so, you know, we're trying to name it. And when you do that, you're inevitably um, leaving people out or, or misrepresenting or like, you're trying and your whole heart and soul is in the work of trying, but there will be mistakes. And so I think there ha has to be humility. There has to be a lack of fear of being mis mistaken, like mm -hmm. making a mistake. And that is super hard. Yeah. It's super hard. But I think that that is an, like an, a very big part of the recipe. Yeah. I agree. It's it's being prepared to fail and forgiving yourself, I think, for any missteps and knowing that you did the best you could on that day with what you had and the knowledge you had and experience and that, yeah, tomorrow's another day and you're going to create something else or a new line or a new bit. But it is very, very hard to do it. Again, us sitting here right now, comfort of our own places, it's like easy to do. But when it's your thing you put out there, oh, it's tough. It is, it is a tough Right. For new authors or young authors, what is your advice to those people who are looking to write something? Like for me with comedians, I often say, you know, patience is so key. Like you can't, you, know, you see these viral videos and you go, oh, I'm going to be that guy. And it's like, get rid of all that. And if they ask me about money off the top, I go, this is not for you. Okay. You need to go get a job somewhere. If you're looking for money, you want to start stand up, make money right away. You need to go over here. It's a different door. You go through. <laughs> it's just not why you should start something. You know, yes. to me, yeah. it's not a pure thing. Um, but it's about patience and self exploration and being willing to fail and really enjoying the process every day of what you're doing. Like for me, I like writing jokes. I like performing them. I love all the stuff that goes with it. So I'm lucky that way. But that means I have a chance at a long career because I actually enjoy the process of doing this thing. 
Mm-hmm. But for so that's why I always say to comedians when they start, it's just that really make sure you love it and want to put the work into it, the detail into it. What do you tell new authors when someone comes up and goes, you know, Lisa, I love writing. I, I want to write books. Or I want to write short stories. What would you say to them? Well, I teach at the university. I teach creative writing at Memorial. So I'm constantly talking to writers who are just starting, you know, and Honestly, it is it is such a privilege because, well, I really do believe I mean, it sounds hokey, but I honestly do believe that everybody has a story or could write a book or, you know, everybody has that in them. But there are tools that you need to understand to get it on the page so that other people can understand it. So I tell them. And everybody who writes tells the same thing. It's, you know, read, see how other people are doing it, but also find people who are really good readers to read your work and and say, uh, I didn't get it here. I got I got that part. I know what you were trying to say there. And as you're saying about bringing new material out every week and and putting it before an audience and understanding the feedback or listening to it. Um, That's what we do in, in the classes, but it doesn't like, you know, they bring new material that they've written that week and we read it and talk about it and say, yeah, I don't know why you use that adjective because you lost me there. you know. <laughs> but also I cried when I read that part or whatever it is, you know, people say. Um, so but it's important to have people who are who are good readers, like who who really understand craft and yeah. you can't just trust your work to any any reader. It has to be people who who are who know about writing, I guess, but tons of people do, you know, there's, you don't have to go to a university to learn this, you, or, or a community center. You can get, you can meet other people who read and write and critique. And, but that, I think, I think being a part of a community and trying out new material, um, that's the, and, and, figuring out how it's working and why it isn't working. If it isn't all of that, I think is a huge thing. And that means being vulnerable. Yeah. And you get used to critique early, right? Like that too. I would imagine when you're putting your work out every week in front of people in a class and you're getting feedback, you start to callous a little bit. You get to, it's not as big a deal anymore. You know, like people always yeah. say to comedians like, Oh my God, I don't know how you do it. I would, what would you want me to do if you bomb? And it's like, you have it happen and you get up the next day and you live and you go get your coffee the next morning. Like you realize it's not fatal. And I think yeah. that encourages you to try even more and to try new stuff again and try new stuff again. But if you've built up, you know, failing as a Mount Everest and it's just this colossal thing you'll never get past. I don't know how you create anything, you know, that you're going to share with the world. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. It's, 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 you've got to toughen that up. And I think, um, for authors, it's interesting to see that you guys do the same thing. It's like, no, I need to, I need to balance this off with people first to see if I'm on the right track. Because you could be in love with it. You could be like, no, this is the best stuff I've ever written. And you hand it to someone else, and they're like, yeah, I don't know. What's, what's this? They're in a boat? What? <laughs> <laughs> now, in the, in the meantime, there are writers who don't share their work as they're writing. And, and for whatever reason, they're able to make you know, masterpieces anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's not, um, 
Like I think Michael Crummy, for instance, who, you know, regularly tosses out the masterpieces. <laughs> um, he doesn't show it to anybody until it's done. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so obviously you can do it that way too. And if he was here, he'd say, you know, everybody does it differently. I think, you know, right. everybody has their own way, but yeah, I, I, I like getting feedback because I'm a social person and, you know, like I'm probably too social. (laughs) So I enjoy the chat about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a little bit of a jump off point for just connection in general anyway. Right. So, um, all right. Well, we have gone, we're like an hour and 10 minutes into this thing that we have just swallowed by. We could talk for weeks. Um, I want to ask you this question to end, and you're the first person I'm going to ask this question to. I'm not going to ask this question now for uh, for the rest of the podcast episodes for a while to end off the uh, my the own episode. special question. Your own special question, Lisa Moore. I'm going to pull the picture and go explain this sweater. No. Um, you're like, ah, oh, you know what? We were partying. Um, here's the thing: what? If your young self could come now and see the life that you have and what you've done, what do you think your your younger Lisa would say? Showed up now was like, well, walked into this place and said, well, what would it, what would she say? Um, I think I always, I think I always wanted to write, and I think it is given. Uh, Given the um, obstacle course it is, given, you know, the difficulties that you've, that many people face, I feel like my younger self would say, wow, you won the lottery, like you were lucky. And I feel like, yeah, I was, I was, I have been blessed with a ridiculous amount of luck, just a ridiculous amount of luck. and. Um, and, and I'm, I'm going to knock wood because <laughs> I don't want to jinx it or anything. But uh, it's, I think, I think she would be happy with it. I think she'd yeah. be happy. I've had, I have a lot of people I love. I have a big, big life full of people I love, friends and family. And so, um, yeah, I think, I, I think she'd be happy. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. It was awesome to catch up with you. I'm so glad you're doing well and uh, looking forward to the, uh, do we have one in the making? Is there, is there a book now that we're working on? Anything we want to share? The truth is that I don't have a title for it, so I don't know how, if I can share it in any way, but I just passed it in. Nice. Yesterday. Congrats. (laughs) Yeah. Get out of here. Take it. (laughs) <laughs> we'll see what they say. <laughs> they may say, uh-uh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so hopefully they'll like it. That's awesome. Thanks so much. I, I'm sure we'll smash your success. And I know as long as you're happy with it, that's it. That's your that's your thing. You made it. It's mine. Boom. Here we go. Take it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks so much again, Lisa. It was great to catch up with you. Thanks. You too, Trent. It's so great to see you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.